Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I'm so happy and grateful to have Kurt von Arnhem with us here today, who grew up on the outskirts of Philadelphia in a single-parent home. This is before Child Protective Services cared about leaving kids at home unsupervised and with a sister six years as junior to take care of, life moved fast. Dismissed from his Catholic high school with the farewell, a kid like you will never amount to anything, Kurt set out to prove them right for a few years. As life threw more curveballs, Kurt began to recognize that self-empowerment and surrounding himself with qualified people would lead to opportunity. Now the author of books, a certified leadership speaker and coach, WordPress power user shares his story and some of the tools that helped him overcome his obstacles. A former cycle, a former motorcycle road racer, Kurt found himself building and leading training teams for both Ducati and Suzuki, which he transitioned into an independent training company serving the power sports and marine niches. While still consulting with other businesses in regards to blended learning tools and business efficiencies, when not focused on business growth, Kurt can be found bicycling on the streets and trails of Southern California, promoting his message of physical fitness, leading to fiscal fitness. Kurt, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Jesse. And uh, it, it's when you do the introduction, it's it's weird how your mind works, right? And you just start thinking, oh wow, oh wow, oh yeah, oh yeah. But it's it's uh, it, it's true, you know. I, I think back to when I was young, and people, you know, were like, ah, oh, this degenerate, he's never going to be anything, he's never going to do anything, and and in the 80s, if you raced motorcycles, you know, you had the plague, you know, now everybody wants to have a performance, you know, superbike and talk about their track days, but it wasn't that way in the 80s. And now I think about it, you know, it's, it's true, you know, you, you publish a book, you, you put out some content, you speak in front of a few groups, and then you get to guest on awesome podcasts like yours. And, and it's, it's just neat what life holds in store for you if you just give it a chance to unfold. Kurt, I'm curious, when I was reading through that, that bio of yours, did you have any flashbacks, like memories that popped up that were kind of unique that you didn't think would come up and in and, and your reflections on that? You know, I think the, of the high school years, and I wasn't your normal high school student, I was already a retail manager of complete stores by the time I was in high school, and I had adults that had to uh, report to me. And so I would get calls, it was so bizarre, but I'd get calls over the, over the loudspeaker in high school Kurt, please come to the office for a business call. And then they would have to say, hey, Mr. So-and-so wants to return his sofa. Can we accept this return or not kind of thing, right? Because that was before cell phones and things like that, right? And, and I think back to that. And then I think about the disciplinarian um, pulling me into the office and then telling me, hey, we have to let you go. It was a private school and I was behind on tuition. I was helping my mom with some bills and I wasn't the most responsible person with keeping money. I was great at making it, but horrible at keeping it. And uh, I was behind on tuition and they were going to let me go with like three or four months left of the school year as a senior. And I couldn't believe it, you know, and then as his parting words to me, and it was so weird because this was like before people cared about kids the way we do nowadays, right? Like there was no adult in the room. There was no parent. There was no supervision for this person doing his job. But as a disciplinarian, he said, you know, Kurt, a guy like you is never going to amount to anything in life. Wow. And that's how I left the building. And I was like, well, this is weird. And I was kind of pissed, but kind of like blowing it off. And I thought, well, I guess I'll finish up my high school career at public school. And when I went to take the, the entrance into public school, the counselor there said, wow, you had enough credits to graduate high school after sophomore year. You know, and I was like, wait a minute, what am I doing this for? <laughs> you know, why am I torturing myself? How come no one's counseled me on, on how life really works? 
you know? And then, uh, and that was kind of my indoctrinization to the real world. It was like, if you're going to make things happen, you got to be flexible and you got to be willing to move with, with the punches. That's crazy. So you were told that you were never going to amount to anything. And then by, but you have amassed enough credits in high school to graduate by your sophomore year. Yeah. So here's the thing. When, when you go to Catholic school, there's no phys ed class. And so they told me if I wanted to graduate high school through the, you know, through the high school system, I had to take three phys ed classes a day till the end of the year. So I took um, lacrosse, weightlifting, and badminton. And uh, that's how I finished out my high school career. My other courses were uh, radio, TV, acting, and creative writing. And those were things that the Catholic school never offered. You know, Catholic school, when I went to school, was reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? And so they, they put this big binder in front of me, and they said, you already have enough credits to graduate. You just need to fill the time. What do you want to do? And I said, well, I, I'm not really an artist, but I've always been intrigued by the arts. And so I, I took the creative writing, radio, TV, acting, and, and now look, you know, I'm in my 50s, and I make, you know, training videos for a living and, and build websites for people that, that teach other people how to teach adults. And it's, it's a fun way to go. So how did that, it sounds like that was really impactful for you to diversify your, your learning modalities from what traditional learning was in, in academia to broadening horizons. And so is that something that you still practice today where you find yourself going outside of your comfort zone and your, your areas of familiarity to broaden and diversify how you learn and what you learn? Yeah. Um, I don't want to sound like I'm copying text or my verbiage directly from like Gary Vaynerchuk or anything like that, but I am not a big fan of, of traditional schooling in, in the sense that people talk about go to school, get a good job and, and, and move forward like that. It just never fit with me. I didn't, even in high school, I was like, why are we doing this? You know, we had to do a report. Uh, I remember it was 10th or 11th, I think it was 10th grade. We had to do a report in English on what we were going to go to. And I thought, well, this is so weird. And it was a, it was a report and a speech. You had to get up and do a speech on it. And so I was already a manager at the retail level at stores in my neighborhood. I, I worked really hard. I started working when I was 11. And so I said, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to be in retail sales because at that time, you know, 80% of the people that made over $50,000 a year were in sales. Mm -hmm. And so I used that as my justification to say, I'm going to skip college and, and go right into the workforce. And this is why. And the teacher started to argue with me and say that I was going to fail the assignment because I didn't say what college I was going to go to. And I said, well, I'm not going to go to college. So that would be, you know, a false document to write, publish and talk. This is what I'm going to do. And this is why I'm doing it. And then as I justified my argument, it slipped into a weird conversation about, well, if I went to school to become a teacher, you know, you're a teacher, what are you going to top out for income? And when she said what her income was, I was like, I made that last year managing a furniture store and being a full-time student. Wow. And so that was a, that was a wake-up call. That's when I realized I am definitely contrarian in the way that I approach things. And I'm definitely contrarian in the way that I communicate, but I find I'm able to communicate. I'm able to tell people exactly what needs to be said without offending them to the point that they don't want to work with me anymore. Like when I consult businesses, I can go in and I can say, here's some things you're doing great. Here's some things that aren't going so well. And here's your areas of growth. Now out of these 50 things that are areas of growth, let's just concentrate on the top 10 and see how we can, you know, positively affect your business. And then it, it seems to work well. 
but there's there's a there's a nice way to say something that's really cutting you know and i i think i started to get that experience way back then i want to circle back to that in just a moment kurt and i want to look at so 11 year old you is going to work what was driving you at that time and is that driver what drove you then is it the same driver that you have still today it sounds so surface jesse but uh, mom was a single mom dad was a, a deadbeat drunk absentee dad and I would see him every now and then if I wanted to. I, I knew where to find him if I wanted to say hi. But um, realistically, um, wearing Kmart sneakers to school and shorts with holes in them was not a fun way to grow up. And so the first time that I worked for tips at a gas station, right, pumping gas, you would pump gas and someone would give you two bucks or give you three bucks or whatever. Um, I went and bought my first pair of Nike sneakers down at the, at the neighborhood store. And when I came home with Nike sneakers, I was like, this is the bomb giggity. I can work and buy whatever I want. And that was the driving motivation for a good part of my younger, younger days. It was about acquiring things, value to people. Hmm. What did that acquiring, what did the acquiring of things mean to you? Well, when you grow up without, and then all of a sudden you have the ability to provide um, I became kind of a workaholic at a really young age and it was driven by, you know, what's in my closet, you know, how good am I going to look if I go out with the fellas on Thursday, you know, um, can I afford to buy the guys a round of drinks and be the hero, you know, th those are all things that, um, was kind of the driving force, you know, late teens, early twenties. And then it wasn't until I got older that I realized why am I working so hard to buy things for people that don't matter? or that they don't appreciate, or why am I working so hard to impress? Like, it doesn't matter what kind of car I drive. It just matters that I get everywhere I got to go on time, right? And so, you know, now here I am in my 50s, and the Dodge truck that we drive is paid for with 200,000 miles on it, right? Looks good, drives good, does everything it needs to do, but it doesn't cost me $700 a month because I only paid six grand for it up front anyway, right? And those are the types of decisions that I think have I think they've shown a, a, a more mature side of me to where, like I said earlier, instead of trying to work hard to amass things, now I work hard to try and add value to others because the money's not the most important. It's cool when that's the icing on the cake, but adding value to others and helping others find success is really cool. And then if it, obviously if it pads the bank account along the way, that's just a bonus. I think that's so cool to hear Kurt too, because I, I feel like so many people, they don't, quite get there with that piece they're still struggling i remember i don't remember what book it was but there's a statistic with it that only stuck with me that said something to the effect that 75 to 80 percent of people who drive fifty thousand dollar cars make less than fifty thousand dollars a year and it's this thing that i think you go down the list of it it's i remember you mentioned gary vanderchuk i remember early last year during the initial stages of lockdown he was he would shared a video and he was talking about one of his friends was big in e-commerce and and some massive e-commerce site. And they were saying that while everything else was trending down, there was this huge spike in e-commerce and they're trying to figure out what it was. Well, what it was is that stimulus checks had just hit everybody's bank account. And rather than investing it, paying off bills, you know, stocking up in food, perishables, whatever that was, all these people flooded and went and bought the new Air Jordans, the new this, the new that, because they had this kind of found money piece of it. And it, it's... I remember talking to somebody one time and we were talking about it's almost like in the United States and maybe many of the first world nations, we've gotten so good at commoditizing happiness. 
we, we've made happiness and well-being what we wear and what we own and the stuff we have, which is which it sounds like you learned at a very young age is so fleeting because you do it and you show up and everything's nice and shiny for once. But then all of a sudden now you just have this bar of expectation that you have to constantly meet, but then people don't even, you don't even get the same reaction from them anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I, it really hit me hard most of the way through this pandemic thing. Um, like for instance, last March, I projected that the power sports industry would experience a surge because they were deemed an essential business and with social distancing and everything, you know, motorcycling became the coolest way to social distance. And I saw that from the very beginning. And I think that that's because the old me was remembering, right? I was going, what would I do in this situation, right? And mm. regardless of lack of income, regardless of dependency on unemployment, people that haven't had that, that maturity set in yet, they'll go, man, I gotta go get a new motorcycle. I got, you know, the store's open, I can go do a new bicycle. In Southern California, you can't buy a new bicycle at the store that's, you know, less than $5,000. They're all sold out. And, you know, and you can't get a bike until like 2022. You can, you can order it, but it, it won't be here until next year, right? The supply chain has been broken because there's been such a high demand put on all of that stuff. And, and again, it's, it's I, when I take inventory of, of what matters or what legacy you might leave behind, it's how does owning a new motorcycle or a new bicycle in my particular instance, how does that build a legacy for me to add value to others? And, mm. and it just really doesn't. So, you know, I make do with what I got and I, ha and I have a blast, but I make do with what I got. Kurt, I want to circle back now to the communication piece. And you were saying how you've been able to really cut through and say what needs to be said without being hurtful. When you and I first met, you shared this story with me and I was so impressed by it that you were, you were doing a consulting gig, I think. And it was over, I think in Texas or something like that. And as, as tradition, the people are wanting to know, hey, we, want, we need your hotel, we need your flight info, all these types of things. And you respond back and say, well, I'm not flying, I don't need a hotel, I'm gonna drive and I'm gonna camp. And they're kind of thinking, like, you know, what's this guy's problem? Like, what is he doing? You go to where you're doing your, your consulting gig at and you yep. find a state park or campground, you camp, you, you got a shower there, you go and you, you change and then show up to where the shops that you're working at. And you had said to me that what an impression it made on the, on the guys there, because here you are going to show up and help them with the business. But what they're used to is somebody showing up in a suit that seems completely disconnected with what they do. And then you were the one that actually took the time to show up and they see you immediately as a oh peer and, and talk about and expand on that a little bit about how impactful that was for them. Yeah. Um, I apologize for that. Let me get rid of that noise box. Oh, you're fine. Get in the house. Go. One of my kids was foolish enough to walk by the big glass door and the dog freaked out. So I put him in. Sorry about that. Oh, you're fine. Um, when, when you were talking, kind of recounting that, that story, I was getting those same emotions back again. It's so weird, right? How, you, how the brain and the heart works together. But I, I remember... The, the company that I was contracting for, they, they wanted me to, to fly and rental car and hotel and all that. But when I did that, when I worked for Ducati, that's how I got fat. You know, I got up to like 275 pounds with that type of lifestyle. And, and with COVID and everything, I thought I'm not a candidate for the vaccine. I'm not really looking forward to mandatory testing for flights and hotels and things like that. So yeah, I said, yeah, I'm just gonna drive and, and I'm gonna camp at these campgrounds and I'm gonna watch the travel budget 
but I'm going to have a blast. Like I'm going to take the mountain bike and I'm going to, you know, mountain bike in new places. I'm going to see new things. I'm going to wake up at the lake and be surrounded by wildlife and birds. And, and the, the mental health that I took out of that, out of that journey was amazing. Just in that experience. It was so cool to go to a national, like the um, state parks in Texas are amazing, by the way, like the, the showers are every bit as nice as, you know, at, at a high-class gym, right? Mm. So hot showers, lake, wilderness. I saw my first armadillo there, you know, all kinds of cool things. But when I went to the, the shop owners and visited people and they said, hey, where are you staying? And I said, well, I'm staying at, you know, this Texas state park. Their reaction was so cool. And it was like, this is what our industry needs. We need more enthusiasts. We need people that are going to, you know, get dirty and camp and ride mountain bikes and be enthusiasts and exercise and be outside. And it was really cool to have that kind of that validation that, you know, I made the right decision. I did the right thing. And I was able to connect with the people that I needed to connect with most. You know, I just, it occurred to me as you were sharing that, what a, like almost the, I don't want to say hypocrisy, but there's another word that's not coming to my brain right now of somebody showing up, going through the travel that way, getting overweight because they're, they're, you know, dining and whining and the whole bit to then go and do training for sports. Mm-hmm. Right. Outdoor adventures when the whole lifestyle is anything but outdoors. And then I can imagine too, and you mentioned how good it was for your mental health. And I, I hope you don't mind if we kind of touch on that a little bit. One of my big concerns to this whole thing is I think that the, the mental health fault from COVID is going to be astronomical. We're seeing little bits of it here and there as information trickles out. And I'm really kind of shifting some of what I do professionally to focus on working with doing mental health work in organizations and helping them kind of systematize and habituate these things. And so what I'm hearing from you is that this process was not only really great for your mental health, but I'm curious if you noticed having been in this field for a long time, if that was something where you could imagine or you could experience it being a mental health booster for the people you're working with, because I just imagine like how, and what I'm hearing from you, to have a peer coming in, not from a, not from the Ritz, but from the campground and literally doing probably the stuff that they're so passionate about doing, which is why they're doing the work they're doing anyways. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the mental health aspects, I think range, it, it was, it was so weird. It, it was, uh, it was kind of off the cuff decision to do it. Right. And then I became more and more committed to it. And, and you know what that decision process is like, right? You, you like, I've, I've got a gut feeling about something. And then you're like, no, I know this is the right thing. And then you get a little resistance to it. And then you're like, you know, you can make that decision right then and there. Am I going to cave and do it someone else's way? Or do I know that I'm doing the right thing and push? And I, and I made the push to do what I thought was the right thing. And, and it, it was so resoundingly affirmed that I, I knew it was right. Like, like um, county to county, state to state, traveling in my truck and seeing the vast differences in the way that COVID has been treated in different regions is, has been eye-opening to say the least. I, I went to states where restaurants were open and parking lots were full and hospitals weren't, right? I went to um, places that were fully masked and shut down. When I, I lived in Albuquerque for seven years. And as I was driving back from Texas to California, I was going to go right through the middle of Albuquerque on a Friday night. 
And I remember how busy Albuquerque used to be. I remember how, how vibrant the nightlife was there and, and, and how that downtown area was just lit up. And there, you know, in, in all the wrong ways, right? People racing their cars on the highway, motorcycles. I mean, I just remember the, all the activity. And I was thinking, who am I gonna call when I get close to Albuquerque to set up like a coffee meeting or something, right? Just as I'm going through town. And as I came over the hill and started going down, down what they call you know, the Sandias, that mountain there, you get, a, you get an overview of the city as you're driving down into it. And it was dark. I mean, like blacked out dark. There were no lights in parking lots. There was wow. no cars on the highway. There was nothing going on. And as I drove through Albuquerque, I got a weird, heavy, sick feeling in my chest. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to stop here. I don't want to have coffee with anybody. I just want to get out of here and get back to California. And California is all over the news as being like the state of the lockdown, right? So how weird that I would drive through Albuquerque and say, I can't wait to get back home to California, right? But that's honestly how I felt. And I just hightailed it all the way through Flagstaff, through Kingman, and then, and then into California. Wow. And then I remember, I think it was July of last year, I had to go to downtown Los Angeles to do a TV show taping. And I live a little north of you. Traditionally, if you're if you're really moving with minimal traffic, it takes I can make it to downtown LA an hour and 45 minutes. If you make it an hour and 45 minutes, you're you've won the lottery. That hour and 45 minutes could have a could go as long as four hours too. It's taken that long before too, depending on traffic. I remember driving there and I, I had to leave. I left at 7 a.m. in California or 7 a.m. my time. So right in the middle of what would be rush hour. I made it to downtown Los Angeles, Kurt, in an hour and 21 minutes. I got there so fast. It was so strange. And then I, I missed the turn to the studio. Now in LA, for those of you who aren't familiar with downtown LA, it's a lot of one-way streets, big city. And if, if you miss your turn in LA, it could be a 25 to 35 minute detour trying to get around another block to get back over. I was getting ready to do that. And then I realized that there were no cars in downtown LA. So I turned left across three lanes of street traffic because there was no cars, turned back around and I made it back to the, the turn I missed in 30 seconds. It was such a surreal experience because it did have kind of like this post-apocalyptic, yeah. weird doomsday feel to it. Yeah. And there's almost that part of like, how am I doing this? Right. You're like, where is everybody? And if yeah. it's really this bad, how am I doing this? Um, in October, I got hired as a trainer to train the election people that, that ran the election stations for the county of Los Angeles. And I can remember as the as the contract company was you know consulting with me to find out if I would do this gig or not, they were like, there's 1,200 people that need to be trained. It's going to be in person. Are you okay with that? How do you feel about social distancing? How do you feel about this many people in the classroom? How do you feel about, you know, and and the unique thing about this, and it's going to sound catty when I say it, and, and I don't mean it to sound catty. I mean it for it to be the just what it is, is you know everybody in California at that time was locked down. Restaurants were closed. Everything was shut down. But when they needed to train someone to run the elections, all of a sudden in-person training was okay. And we trained 1,200 people in two weeks. Um, and that moment was two things for me. One was I overcame whatever fear it was to be out in public due to COVID. Like that experience just taught me, I don't need to be scared. I can be cautious, I can make smart decisions, but I don't need to be scared, right? So that was one thing. Um, 
and and the other thing that that it kind of taught me was whatever my opinion is it's okay hmm. right and that and that was one of the big things that you know i don't need to rub it in people's faces i don't need to be angry online i don't need to do i don't need to be antagonistic about things but it made me realize that whatever I, whatever my opinion is or whatever my decision is it's okay to have that and then it's given me a lot of freedom moving forward and how weird is it that you know it was you know doing a job the same government that shut everything down was the same government that said hey can you come and teach these 1200 people um and and so it it really put me at ease with with my thinking and, and the way that i make my decisions and the way that i'm getting through this crisis i'm so grateful you shared that for so many reasons and i think that so many of us this last year has been such a, a charged environment and people have struggled i can't tell you how many folks i've I've talked to who have said that they struggle with even opening up and sharing because they're afraid they don't say it the right way. They're going to have their opinions not up to date, whatever it is. And, and then two, I think that's such an important thing to take note of. It to be, there's a difference between being cautious and being scared. I know folks who have been isolated and alone for so long that many of them are, are, are scared of going back to whatever normal is because they're, you know, we've had this in our face and lived with it so heavily for the last year. And, and I think that's such a refreshing message to, to be cautious, to, to, you know, respect what your own personal boundaries are, but don't allow that to control your life as you reemerge from this time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I went from knowing nobody that had COVID. I mean, to, where you're really starting to wonder, like, is this really a thing, right? To knowing dozens that have, that have been confirmed for having it. And through the experience, it's, it's actually put me more and more at ease with functioning, with doing things, with going out, helping people, adding value to people, consulting at someone's business. Um, like I said, there's a way to be cautious, to be safe, to value people's um, opinions and their boundaries, but you can still visit them, you can still add value to them, and you can still let people know that they matter. I, I don't think isolation is a good thing. So the more we can interact with people, the better. Yeah, I, I agree. Kurt, you mentioned, and I want to give people a tangible with this, about communicating to people in a way that it, you say what you need to say, they can hear what that needs to be told, but it's not offensive to them or not hurtful. Could you kind of outline what that looks like for us just so people can take that away? Because I think a lot of us really struggle with that. There was one shining moment where that really um, showed itself the way the way that I would say something or the way that I would you know and it's not manipulation it, it's just the way of speaking right I used to work in the automotive industry as a service writer and the service writer is the person that you when your car is broken that's who you talk to right you go and you say oh well the stereo doesn't work in my car blah 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 they, they write it down you sign the repair order and then it goes off and a technician works on it right well what's common is um, and this happens to a lot of folks, right? Is, is, it's, it's, a, it's a mental thing. You pay a lot of money to get your car fixed and you might get your brakes done, your, your suspension worked on, you, know, you might get new wheels and tires put on. And then you go to pick up your car and you come back two or three days later and you're like, well, my stereo doesn't work. You guys must've done something, right? Because that's, that's usually the, the link. And I can remember, and this was before I became the service manager of this particular dealership. I was just a service writer. I was like the guy at the... And one of my coworkers was just getting raked over the coals by a customer frothing at the mouth, just angry and spitting and, 
and you guys broke my car and you guys this and you guys that. And, and I just calmly walked over and I, I think being calm is, is part of the key, right? But I just calmly walked over and I said, is it okay if I take a look at the repair order? And they said, yeah. And it had something like 127,000 miles on it, you know? And I, and I, I, I said, hey, you know, Mr. Smith, I'm looking at the paperwork and it looks like we did brakes and suspension work and you're talking about an electrical concern. Um, we drove the car, you know, about four and a half miles according to the paperwork and you've driven the car for 127,000 miles. At what point do you think that component probably wore out? You know, and it's, and it's just that, that all of a sudden, it, I'm not being a jerk, I'm not being antagonistic, I'm not you know, trying to make the guy look like an idiot, I'm just saying, hey, let's just use some reasonable thinking, let's use some critical thought, and let's, let's, ask, a, let's ask a broad scope question. At what point do you think a component would wear out in 127,000 miles? The 127,000 miles that you operated the vehicle or the four and a half miles that we drove it for a test drive for the suspension, mm. you know? And I've had kind of this innate ability to be able to break things down in that way for people so that they don't get, it, it just becomes real, right? They're like, you know, my mom was in the nursing, uh, she was a director of nurses and all kinds of stuff. And, and she was really amped up on the vaccine and lockdowns and it's, you know, all the stuff, you know, and it just didn't align with my thinking. And I can remember asking my mom, I said, mom, you were in the health field. At what point have they told us to work on, you know, making ourselves better with immunology? At what point did they tell us about vitamin C or zinc or, or any of these things that would help us with our immune systems through this crisis? You know, and she was like, hey, I never thought of it like that, you know? And I thought that was so weird because I'm like, you're from the health industry. I'm like, there's so many things we can do to empower ourselves, to make ourselves feel better. I mean, I've ramped up my bicycling. I was averaging 75 miles a week and I'm still a big fella, right? But between mountain biking and road biking, I try to get in about 75 miles a week because I figure the healthier I am, whatever attacks me, whether it's COVID or something else, I'm gonna have a, a, better, a better chance of resiliency, you know, a better, a better way to come out the other side. I hear you on that too. I, uh, that was the, one of the things I sat down with is, okay, all this I can't control, what can I control? And these are yeah. the things I can improve on right now to, to improve my health, better my health. Yeah, you know. And I love that, uh, how you frame that to Mr. Smith about just acknowledging, acknowledging the concern, but also putting it in such a way that it gives it a frame that he can look and say, wow, you know, that, that makes sense. And I think that calmness piece is such key because it's inevitably in communication dynamics, it's almost like if we see, if we see somebody upset, we internalize it and think, take it personally. Like they must be upset about me yeah. and that fight or flight kicks in. We get defensive or think we need to run away. And in and, and so doing, we're, we're not really forming necessarily rational thought out communication or even considering what might be going on in that person's life to be that way. We're thinking only of, Oh, what did I do wrong? Am I bad? You know, am I a bad boy, bad girl, inner child kind of stuff oftentimes too. Yeah. Well, and like when I'm consulting with someone's business, I recognize that that's their business. They grew it. So many people want to look at a business owner and go, oh, that idiot doesn't know what he's doing, right? Like, and you hear people say things like that. And I go, wait a minute. This person somehow, somehow had enough financial acumen to either get the loan or gather investing or, or come up with some way to launch this business. So they're already in a better position than most of us, right? And maybe they're not the best at this, this, you know, the five pillars of business, 
right? Maybe they're not good at this pillar, but they're really good at this pillar or whatever. And so when I consult with the business, I go in and I go, hey, let's talk about the things that are going right. Let's take a look at some of the things you've accomplished as a business. And then I go, now let's take a look at some of your growth areas. And then, you know, it, it's once you, once you begin to isolate the growth areas, then you can go in and say, okay, these are some things that are going to help you grow your business. And these are some practices that are processes that I saw that, that lend energy to that. And they, they usually follow, follow suit and see growth. Kurt, I feel like we've barely begun to scratch the surface, but I want to be respectful of your time. And I know you have a hard stop coming up here pretty quick. Before I ask my final question, where can people find and connect with you online? Uh, well, Manana Nomas is my thing. It's a name we came up with when we lived in New Mexico and we stuck with it. Um, it's the idea that deadlines matter and that everybody, everybody in the project has things due at a certain time. Uh, don't put off today, you know, don't put off till tomorrow what you could do today. And so Manana Nomas is, is our name and mananonomas.com and Manana Nomas on Facebook and Manana Nomas on Twitter are all ways that you can stay in touch with me. I love that. Kurt, you were sharing with me about the Challenge Connection, and I'm just hoping you'd take a minute or two here at the end and tell everybody all about the Challenge Connection. Well, that's brand new, and I am, I'm over the moon excited about it. And I, I've come to realize, there, I, even I've got a couple of missing elements there, right? So uh, Pedro Adeo is a guy that is famous for his online challenges. And as I was looking at Pedro Adeo's stuff and looking at uh, Grant Cardone and, and looking at all these big guys that do online challenges, they're usually done in a, in a Facebook framework, right? So there's a Facebook page and people will announce their challenge. And then it's Facebook's kind of like this first in first out file. And they get hundreds of people doing these challenges, but people get lost on like, am I on day two, day three, day six, they get lost in the activities. And I noticed a lot of people will start a challenge, but not finish the challenge. And so I started looking at this a little bit over a year ago and saying, there's gotta be a better mousetrap for these online challenges. There's gotta be a way to, to build a community, give them the challenges, but keep the challenges organized, and then have a way to nurture the community after the challenge is done, more so than a Facebook fan page is gonna let you do. And so I built this thing called Challenge Connection, and it's, it's meant to take people that have communities already that they wanna you know, instill a challenge with and show them how to grow or how to affect change in whatever their niche is, but then give them the ability to you know, have a CRM, a way to monetize it, a, a way to keep it organized and a way to, to really nurture their challengers that they bring into their organization. And it's all done on a single platform so that they're not having to plug in six or seven different tools or different URLs to keep their people organized. And so it's, I'm really passionate about it, but again, it's in its infancy. And we are hosting our first challenge. We started last week, it's a 10 day challenge. So it's five days last week, five days this week, it'll close out. And I'll be launching a second challenge probably by the time you, you publish this, this podcast. Oh, that'd be great. I would love to join you. And maybe some of the people would like to join in too. That I, having done challenges before, I can say that sounds like such a breath of fresh air. <laughs> well, it, the, the, you know, the things that you learn, right? You learn about gaps. So I'm watching Pedro Adeo's challenge. He's, he's launched a new challenge this week. And so I signed up and I'm doing these kind of like market research for myself. And I realized, I built a really good technical mousetrap. I built a really great platform. But then as I looked at the way he was doing his challenge and the way that my challenge was rolling out, I realized I was missing the emotional pieces. I was missing the, the long form video and, and, the, and some of the connecting pieces that he does through his social channel. And so, you know, we can never stop learning. You know, we, you mentioned earlier, you know, how do you keep learning? You know, I, I did the John Maxwell thing. I read a lot of books. I, you know, I, 
absorb websites and YouTube and, and try and soak in as much as I can. And even though I think I've built this really great mousetrap, it's like, okay, I participated with Pedro Adeo and I realized I can still up-level this thing, you know, two or three more times. So by the time we launch the next challenge, it should be a whole new environment and something more engaging. That's awesome. Everyone, is there so much wisdom here you want to rewatch and re-listen to? Kurt took us on an incredible journey starting in the early days, 11 years old, working in, already at work, motivated to get some Nikes, motivated to look good for the fellas, and is told by his, his disciplinarian that he's never going to amount to much. Even though he's at a sophomore, has enough credits to graduate high school and opens up the door for him to take some new courses and classes he might otherwise not do across acting, writing, getting outside the box. And it's such a great lesson that so many of us, we get so confined to comfortability and familiarity and that there's such an amazing world to broaden outside your horizons, to trust in your instincts. So what might interest you? What might you want to explore? And giving yourself permission to do that. And that sounds like it's been a theme throughout Kurt's life. And it was something that where he had that gut instinct to, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change up the traditional way of business travel rather than flying and doing the hotel. I'm going to do the drive and, and the park. And in so doing it, ended up creating this unique connection and opportunity with him as how he better served and added value, which if you listen closely, that was a very important thing for him when he's talking legacy. It's not about necessarily wealth accumulation as it is value, added, value addition. How can you add more value to the lives of your customers and clients? How might you change how you're showing up and, and meeting them upon that first introduction? We all know that the first impression, that first five to nine seconds is so critical. You know, is there a way that you can build better rapport? Is there a way you can connect more quickly? Is there a way you can be more in alignment with the work you do? I think that's what I love so much about Kurt's story. He's going in and talking with these guys about motor sports and he's out there doing the sports. And then coming in, it's an instant thing about you know putting more people in who are enthusiasts about the work they do. Looking at the difference between between being safe and acknowledging struggles but not being scared, gosh, that's such a refreshing thing. And really looking at what we can do to improve our mental health. What are the areas that we can control? What can we positively affect? Are there areas in life right now that you haven't fully embraced about that are in your control that you can improve on? What are those micro adjustments you could do? And communication, boy, has communication been on spotlight this last year? It seems like, yeah, I'm sure all of us have had those experiences of going on social media and it seems like everybody's just yelling at each other. But to just stop and be calm, you know, what would all of our communication be like with our business partners, our friends, our family members, our loved ones, if we just took a breath? If we just took a breath and went into it being calm, not being defensive, but really going in to try to serve and connect and understand the other person. It sounds like it changed the experience of Mr. Smith back in the auto body shop years ago. And I think that it could probably change all of our lives too. Kurt, this has been such an incredible time to spend with you today. Thank you for sticking with me through the technical challenges early on. And man, I, you brought so much value today and just given me a lot to think about and consider, and I'm excited to apply it going forward. And I hope to join you in the challenge, the, the challenge in the next iteration of it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's humbling to have somebody like you kind of pull all that out of that, that short time we had together. It's, uh, I'm like, wow, I didn't realize we brought all that to this meeting, but I guess we did. And I think I only hit 30% of it. <laughs> oh. Hey, thanks, Kurt, man, we appreciate you. Uh, it, it, this has been great. I really enjoyed it. And uh, one of these times, uh, we'll get you on the Manana Namas podcast 
and you can talk to me about what this what this whole series of interviews has created for you and for your audience. I and I would love that. Yeah, we will see you next time, everyone, on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to